0: And so now we uh, open the Bible to consider God's Word. And as we do this, Holly and Tracy, I can't help but think of Bob. When we were having our congregational meeting to discuss the transition for me to become lead pastor, the only reason I've had to question the judgment of this congregation... Your dad asked me what my vision for this church was. And I thought I gave him a rather elaborate, overarching answer to what I thought the church ought to be. But he looked at me and he said, but what I want to know is, is the word going to continue to be preached here? And I said, yes, sir. And so as I think of all of you and of all of those who have gone before us into glory, including our brother Bob Urich, I turn our attention to the word that is established firmly in the heavens. Luke chapter 2. As we're skipping over a section, a section, Lord willing, that we'll come back to in the Advent season, having looked at the introduction to this gospel account, we are going to uh, skip over to chapter 2 and pick up reading with verse 39. And I remind you, this is the word of God. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee. I'm sorry. Yes, to their own town of Nazareth. Verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. and man, and so as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. I still have the shoes I wore to work that day. The soles are melted and they're caked in ash. I keep them in a shoebox with the word deliverance written all around it, they're kind of like my ark, a reminder of God's presence and the life I owe to him. A survivor of September the 11th in New York City, a day when everyone ran from the tragedy that was unfolding except for the first responders who drove and ran to get into the building today of course we are looking at this passage from the gospel account left for us by luke the physician the doctor who delivers good news to tell us about a savior who came from heaven into this disaster that is a world plunged into sin he did not wince nor turn away but he came willingly And to this very hour, he bears in the body that is his, though in a glorified state, the marks of nails that pierced him. A reminder that we have a deliverer, a savior, one who has come to rescue us, one who came to do the will of his father. And we see that he did that even in childhood. It is an extraordinary passage. There is very little that we know about the childhood of Jesus except from this passage. Now, there are apocryphal accounts about Jesus saying extraordinary things and doing extraordinary things like fashioning birds or pigeons out of clay from the ground and throwing them in the air and they came alive or saying to a palm tree to bend over to give him something to drink. All of those things were fabricated by people who wanted to write about Jesus as they imagined him to be. But Luke, as the other gospel writers in the New Testament convey to us, actual historical truth concerning the Lord Jesus. And so we have this one window into his childhood, this one ray of light into those years that otherwise are mysterious and unknown to us. And what we see concerning the Lord Jesus here is that he absolutely was about the business of redemption and securing our rescue. So I'll just go ahead and give it away at the, at the beginning. My point here is going to be is that Jesus is for everybody. From little children to the oldest among us, Jesus has experienced all of life and its travails and difficulties and temptations. Little children can come to him and he receives them because Jesus was himself a little child, and is able to sympathize with our weaknesses at every stage. And so we exalt him together. What we find in this passage is a story, and especially verses 41 through the first part of 51 form a literary component, and verse 46 is the center. And if you read verse 46, it has to do with Jesus being in the temple. In the original Greek, there are 170 words, so that the central phrase here is where it says he was among the teachers, a 12-year-old child who astounds the great scholars of his day as he asks them questions and listens to their answers, and then he himself responds. Verse 49, perhaps, is the heart of the story. These are, after all, Jesus' first recorded words. Of all the things that he said, these are the first recorded for us, not only in the Gospel of Luke, but in the others as well. And we have here in verse 49 something that scholars call, or at least one in particular calls, a dyksic shift. Now, I just had to say that because I discovered that word in my studies and wanted to tell them. It's a literary shift. In verse 49, we go from the action being performed by his parents. That's what's happened throughout Luke's narrative up until this point. The action has been carried out by others. and In particular, it is Joseph and Mary. His parents went to Jerusalem every year. But in verse 49, a very profound shift occurs in which Jesus is the one who carries out the action. He said to them, Why are you looking for me? So that as we come to the end of the passage, he went down with them and came to Nazareth. From here on out, Jesus is the focus of the story, not just by way of passive recognition, but by his active participation. So suddenly... Dyksic shift becomes something maybe we're all interested in. But don't worry. You can be a saved Christian without knowing that word. I simply wanted to point your attention to this. By the way, a friend of mine who is an author tells me that publishers don't like that sort of thing. They don't like you shifting the point of view from one person to another in the same chapter, let alone the same verse. He said, but we'll give Luke a pass. Something else to point out in verse 49, in the last part of the verse, before I quickly go through the meat of the matter, is that there is a discrepancy in the rendering of the word for household or house. In some versions, this is rendered, I must be about my father's business. This is easily resolved. For we know that in the Greco-Roman world, house or household did not refer simply to a location. It referred to a position of authority. And so when Jesus said that I must be in my father's house, he was literally saying I must be about my father's business because this is his house. I must be about my father's work and his will. So. Here they are. Jesus growing up in a Jewish home, being raised in the faith, and in that faith system, they live and work in Nazareth. But as he grows, he's filled with wisdom. Now, here we have an insight into the human nature of Christ, a great mystery that theologians have grappled with through the ages clearly he is god but he is also a human being and so we have a an insight into the human and divine nature of the lord jesus though being god as a human being he has set aside certain prerogatives and privileges that were his as the son of god and has limited himself to a human body and a human intellect now let me tell you something i'm going to exhaust my knowledge on this matter in about three more words we are talking about a profound mystery we see there are times in scripture when jesus seems not to know things and we know that is in no wise a description of a lack of omniscience on the part of god but it is simply a description of the limitedness of jesus in his human state see i told you i was going to go beyond our ability to understand very quickly so jesus grows He grows physically. He grows mentally and intellectually. He gains in wisdom as he grows. A mind that is not encumbered by sin. He did not possess a sin nature. So he has an intellect that's not encumbered by the things that we have to deal with. We all have to carry pencils with erasers on them. We have to have correction keys on our keyboards, those backspace buttons that come in so handy when we mistype. Or misspeak. We see that the journey is made, which seems to have been a practice on the part of his parents. And what we read about here is one that happened on this particular occasion. When Jesus is at the age of 12. They they celebrated the Passover as is commanded in scripture. And yet there is something different that happens this time as we see. It's extraordinary. It is a wonderful story that helps us understand more fully who our Savior is. So, in the point that I've already made, being fully God and fully human, Jesus grows physically and intellectually. Again, we get beyond our understanding, but we simply have to recognize that Jesus was while God, yet he was fully human. He experienced the difficulties and travails of growing up. He didn't have to make apologies. I mean, think about this in contrast. Uh, Something that my friend uh, Don Reed says in his latest book, Piano Days, which is about three friends. And strangely enough, it comes pretty close to accurately describing me and two friends that I had growing up. He says in one paragraph, We were young and imperfect, worse than some, not as bad as others. Looking back on those wonderful and tender years, I can see some things we did were crude, even rude, and yes, we bent some rules, but never broke any laws. We walked up to the line more than once, but we seldom crossed it. We were boys, red blooded and green, adventurous and curious. We liked girls. Now that part is an apt description of my friends and I this next one, not so much, and girls liked us. Some decisions we had to make on the spur of the moment. Some we fretted over for days, but everything we finally did, we lived with for a lifetime to come, and to be honest, we had more good times than we had regrets. I don't know of any surviving adult who will admit to everything that has gone through their minds or will confess to all the things they did and said when they were teenagers or will own without reservation everything they wish they'd never done. Would I not change a thing? I won't go that far. But reflecting on all those sweet and youthful ministries, there's some I wish I'd never done, but a few I wish I'd done more. To intentionally repeat myself, we were young and imperfect, but we had fun. Now, that's a general description of all of us in our youths, for the most part, though there may be some here who actually did break laws, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But what I want to do by reading that is to contrast for you the general, average, normal human experience was not that of Jesus. Not having a sin nature he always did, which was pleasing to the Father, and so you don't have him in this passage nor anywhere in the Bible is he apologizing he never says oh i'm sorry now any good and decent person that we know in our lifetimes is good at apologizing because we know we all make mistakes but i want you to note the extraordinary character and sinlessness of the lord jesus so that that is not necessary he never apologizes because you see jesus was not only perfect by way of his innocence But he possesses a perfection of holiness in which he not only refrains from doing evil, but he chooses to do good. And in this piece of literature, this inspired portion of God's word, he chooses to do good. He does the will of his heavenly father. As Mary says, your father and I were looking for you. He has to say to her and Both she and his earthly father, Joseph, knew that God the Father ultimately was his father, as that had been revealed to both of them by an angel. I had to be about my father's business. Quite extraordinary as we contrast who Jesus is with who all of us are. And the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We know that Jesus was born Jewish, raised in the Jewish faith as a child of the covenant. We've already encountered the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary in the earlier verses, chapters 1 and 2, when we see that they had hearts that were intent on serving God, which was an indication of their being objects of the saving grace of God. And so Jesus was raised in that household of faithfulness, even though his parents, earthly parents were not perfect, nevertheless he was raised that way. Note in verses 39 and 41, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that is noted. And then in verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. They practiced their faith. They didn't merely profess to be believers in God. They acted on that faith by doing the things that God instructed them to do as God instructs all of us in the faith. We don't live out the faith according to the way that we think is best. We, if we have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, are students of and are otherwise instructed by the word of God. It is a faith that has been delivered to us by God himself. And so God instructs us. We don't make our way according to our own imagination, but according to God's instruction. The thing, of course, that catches our attention is that jesus astounds those who truly listen to him now we don't know who all the scholars were in the temple on that day when jesus was sitting among them but they were astounded as they listened to him this 12 year old child astounding them not by doing tricks but by displaying his knowledge not in an arrogant way it doesn't say that jesus was teaching them note that it says jesus was listening to them There is a humility in his position of superiority. To all who heard him, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And you see that in the course of his life as he teaches. People are astounded. This man teaches with authority. This man teaches like no one we've ever heard before. And so those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we know that to be true. Most of us have had really good teachers through the course of our lives, and there are some really good teachers that we want to pay homage to. But when we find Jesus in the New Testament and we read his words as the Holy Spirit illuminates them to our minds and hearts, oh, we quickly say, there's nobody like Jesus. I had good parents. I had wonderful teachers. I had people who were blessings in my life. But there is no one like Jesus, and so we exalt him. We are astounded by his teachings. We see that the Father favored the Son. God the Father favors God the Son, and the Son loves and glorifies the Father. Jesus saying simply to them, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house or about my Father's concerns? I must be throughout his whole life. Jesus did not what he was constrained to do, not what he was made to do. He did what he wanted to do, and what he wanted to do was a must for him. I must do my Father's will. He did not want to do anything else. He delighted in it. He said at one point it was food for his soul, that his meat was to do his Father's will. So we see him, and what immediately becomes apparent is Jesus' moral perfection and our severe imperfection. And initially that's convicting. Initially that puts us off and we realize what a terrible predicament we're in. I mean, after all, here's one who breaks the curve. What about that kid in school when everybody else did poorly on the exam? There's that one kid that studied and did well on the test. And everybody was hoping for a curve. You know, the teacher would take the highest grade and bump that up to 100, and then everybody else's would be moved accordingly. And that kid broke the curve. Why do you think Jesus was so despised? By the religious leaders. They who thought they meticulously kept the law, yet knowing in their hearts they never achieved perfection. Jesus comes along and he breaks the curve. Now, does that help you understand a little better? You see, I have to take my simple childlike student mind, in which I never excelled in school, and try to convey in a way that helps me to understand. Jesus prevails where all others have failed. We see that Jesus' true identity and purpose were defined by God and not by human conjecture. We have to receive Jesus as he's presented in the scripture, not as we find him talked about by the supposed scholars of our day who, unbelieving as they are, pretend to know the historical Jesus. The historical true Jesus is right here in the pages of scripture. Don't buy into the lie that you have to look for him elsewhere. You find him right here where he intends for us to find him by the grace of God. As he declares, I must be in my father's house. His mission and his identity are defined from heaven, not on earth. His true identity and purpose, nevertheless, go often unrecognized, even by those closest to him. We see that here. They did not. His parents did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, which makes us think of John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We even see how that his own brothers thought he was crazy in the course of his ministry. And so we see the ministry of Jesus consistently misunderstood throughout the course of it on earth. And it should be no surprise to us that Jesus continues to be misunderstood in our own generation. But just because others fail to understand should not deter us from grasping the things that are clearly revealed to us in Scripture. That we can trust in what God says about his Son. That we can believe in him, even though very intelligent people differ from us. We see that biblical submission is proper in our human relationships and that it does not imply inferiority. Even though Jesus is the Son of God the Father, notice he nevertheless submits to his parents as he goes with them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That's an example for all of us. The Bible tells us many ways in which we are to submit to authority. Wives, submit to your husbands. How many husbands have pulled that out of the Bible on occasion in the middle of an argument? Failing to recognize the bulk of that passage of Scripture which talks about the way in which the husband is to be submissive to the Lord. But submission does not imply inferiority. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will, not because he was inferior to the Father. Remember, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God, equal in power and glory and of the same substance. There was no inferiority. It was a voluntary submission on the part of Christ in order to accomplish salvation for us. And so we are called upon to submit. Not because of inferiority. That's wrong. Somebody wants to talk about the male-female relationship as if the female parts of us are inferior to the male. That's just plain wrong. Chuck Swindoll said there's actually a Greek word for that, hogwash. (laughs) It is voluntary. God created man, male and female. In his own image, he created them. We also need to note, as I've already said, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses from childhood on up. He came through childhood. He knows the difficulties. He knows all the temptations associated with our existence at every stage of life. For we do not have a high priest in in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, sometimes we try to talk to people and we realize very quickly that they simply cannot sympathize with our issue or understand the problem that we're having. That is never the case with the Lord Jesus. When we go to him in prayer, we can be confident in knowing he knows our weaknesses. He knows the travails of life. He's been here and done that. Got the T-shirt. I don't want to trivialize that. He's got nail marks in his hands and his feet. That's what he got for coming here. So don't ever question. Don't ever think when you pour out your heart to him in prayer. Does God even understand what I'm going through? Yes, he understands. Because God, the beloved son, endured life. And as Mary treasured these things in her heart, So we are reminded that gospel truth and our experiences of the gospel are to be treasured and pondered. Do you treasure the gospel? A 9-11 worker treasures a pair of boots with melted soles, ashes caked on them, remembering that horrible day. We have mementos in our homes, in photo albums, or in the cloud. Pictures, memories, thoughts, things that we treasure. I remember holding our children after they were born. I still can't believe that little boy that I held so long ago on the 24th of May, 1995, is now this big hulking guy. And when he hugs me, sometimes I fear for my life that he might squeeze the air out of me. He's hard as a rock. But I treasure when he was that little child and his sister when she was born i never let kathy forget that i got to hold her first i got to give her her first bottle there may come a time when consequences of sin and diseases of the mind may take from me those memories but as long as i remember i treasure them and all the more should we treasure the gospel because the lord jesus came for our rescue When everyone else fled from the disaster, he inserted himself in it. And we see that wasn't something that just happened at Golgotha on the day that he died. It was something that happened from the moment of his conception. We see it here, and we'll see it throughout this gospel presentation. Jesus came and succeeded where all others had failed, and the rescue was real. The world is falling down around us. You need a Savior. It's time for you to stop buying into the intellectual arguments that are presented to you by so-called documentaries on television or because you've read the latest thing about what people think about Jesus in the latest periodical or article online. It's time you accept the source material, the primary source, and repent and trust in Jesus as he is, not as people imagine him to be. And you will discover that he is a Savior like no other, who has always done his Father's will. And because he persevered and never failed, you will not be the exception. When it comes to those who are saved, if you repent and trust in him, you will not be that one on the judgment day who says, oh, wow, I guess he forgot. I guess I was left out. You can be assured that if you trust in him, you are saved because that's the kind of savior we have. Remember, where all others failed, the man prevailed. From childhood to the day at the cross, Jesus never fails. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us, O Lord, we pray. To know the Lord Jesus and to know him more fully, to know you more fully, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, that we may be assured of the great rescue performed for our sakes. And so we bless you and we praise you and we ask you that we may know him in the power of his resurrection for we pray in his name amen at calvary as we look at jesus we must always think of the cross even as we know he was raised from the dead we must never forget that he suffered for our sakes as the puritan said there are two great truths in life man has sinned and god has suffered at calvary You receive the blessing remember our plan those who would like to depart you certainly may and others as Gordon plays the postlude and we contemplate on this day we'll hear a report from Pastor John wherever you go wherever you may be this day go with God's blessing so may grace mercy and peace from God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore and everyone said together amen